Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. I am here at the Game and Fish headquarters off Carefree Highway in Arizona. I've got Jim Heffelfinger here. Had him on the podcast before. Jim, how you doing? Good. Good to be here. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. We've had a podcast before, and um, I think the first time I actually met you in person, uh, we were, Dar and I were at the NWTF convention last year in Nashville, Tennessee, and I believe you were there as a part of the mule deer study, I think. Um, what what were you doing there? Yeah, I'm part. I'm uh, one of two Arizona Game and Fish representatives on the National Wild Turkey Federation Technical Committee. So that's one or two biologists from from all the states, and they get together. And that convention is where we get together and we talk about um, common things that we can do to, to kind of make uh, turkey management more consistent. Talk about new developments in turkey uh, biology. Okay. Um, for whatever reason, I thought you were there for mule deer, yeah. but maybe you were going to a mule deer. You're remembering because I was coming right from Salt Lake City in the oh, Western okay. Hunting and Conservation Expo, which this year those two are exactly I the know. same weekend. And so um, I have to go to the mule deer one because I run an all-day mule deer working group meeting there. And so I won't be in Nashville, unfortunately, but that was a good time. Yeah, I, we're going to go to um, Western Hunting Expo also and have to miss the NWTF. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've let's start at the beginning you've been with the game and fish here in arizona for how long 27 years and about two weeks and you studied your background is um talk a little bit about where you studied yeah my my bachelor's degree came from university of wisconsin stevens point that was uh at the time the largest undergraduate wildlife school in the country so really good um undergraduate school and then went to south texas and and researched uh, coyote predation on trophy whitetails in south texas for my master's degree down there worked for uh, a couple months for the blm in carlsbad new mexico because i didn't want to go back and shovel snow in wisconsin and and then uh, Arizona Game and Fish had an opening for a regional biologist doing a lot of cool stuff. So I've been here ever since. 27 years. That's awesome. You know, we had talked, I think, on the last podcast how much experience you had in South Texas. Uh, and, you know, what you're talking about predation on those deer. Um, and we talked, I believe, about similarities with some of those South Texas deer to some of our coos deer here. Um, and one thing that I'm a deer nut, I know you are too, you love them. Uh, if you had to pick uh, deer to go observe yourself or deer to go hunt yourself, do you have a favorite, whether it be Texas whitetail, coos deer, uh, mule deer, do you have a favorite? I haven't hunted Sitka blacktail, but that's Aren't they a beautiful? bucket list. They yeah. are really neat, and the, and the country's really gorgeous and i know some people that are up there and you know i have the opportunity i just don't have the time and money right now but that's that's my bucket list deer for sure yeah um other than the sitka deer are there is there one that you just you have a passion for more than others definitely mule deer really (laughs) where does that come from does that come from not not growing up around Mm -hmm. mule deer yeah i can tell you exactly where it comes from so i grew up in in wisconsin hunted whitetails in wisconsin we've got the big boreal subspecies there and it's big and then went to south texas and and researched those animals managed those animals on a, a trophy ranch after i got my master's degree there and just survey these gigantic South Texas whitetail bucks. And then I came to Arizona as a biologist and started flying helicopter surveys and started seeing these little dinky 110-point whitetails <laughs> underneath the helicopter. And I, and I couldn't believe the biologists were getting so excited over something that was 110 Boone Crockett points. It didn't make any sense to me. And then, uh, and then after, and I didn't have any experience with mule deer uh, before that at all. 
And then I started seeing these big mule deer racks, and I said, now there's, there's a deer. That's, that's a deer I can, I can get behind. And so that's why I've, I've gravitated to mule deer. And then early in my career was uh, put on uh, this mule deer working group that I now chair, but originally I didn't, and been working on mule deer issues throughout the West. And so I just, I just shifted and moved to um, mule deer being my favorite deer. So you're now the chair of that group. How long have you been involved with that group? And maybe talk a little bit about the formation of that group and what have mm-hmm. you. Yeah, I've been a representative. I've been on the group since um, 97. So it's about 21st year right now that I've been involved in that group. And um, originally that was designed or put together by the Western directors because in the 90s there was mulder populations throughout the West were declining and it seemed like it must be one thing that's causing this decline because it was almost uh, everywhere and all the directors when they get together uh, talked about how their their constituencies were chewing on them because their mulder populations were low and what are you going to do about the low mulder population so one thing they did was assemble this group of having one expert from 23 western states and Canadian provinces to get together and talk about maybe what was causing these declines, what we could do to improve mule deer conservation in the future. And that was the genesis of that group. And so we were together for a while. We produced some uh, North American mule deer conservation plans, some habitat guidelines, some good things. And as we continued to work on things, new issues came up and we just rolled to the new issue and, and just have continued to be a very productive group, producing a lot of things that have helped a lot of biologists on the ground, helped a lot of um, hunters understand more about deer biology and deer management, and and we still remain productive and relevant today, and so we're still chugging along. From the time of the formation of that group to now, where would you say mule deer are in a grand spectrum, maybe not even in the state, but an overall, and then and then bring it down to a state level? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, um, we produce, one of the things the Mule Deer Working Group does in the summertime or in the summer uh, meeting is we get together and we put together a summary of the status of mule deer and black-tailed deer throughout the West. And we do that every year. So it's fresh. So it's about a half page or a page for every state or province in the West. And uh, with at least one graph that shows some general trends in the population, we put that together and that, that's on our website, muledeerworkinggroup.com. And that's the reason we did that is because you can't really in a short document summarize what's going on with mule deer throughout the West because it's, it's doing different things in different places. They're doing really well. They may be above population objectives in uh, a few areas. They may be below population objectives in other areas. So you can, in a broad brush, kind of summarize what's going on with, with mule deer. And so we, we, we did this where you could actually read through jurisdiction by jurisdiction and get a good feel for what's going on and get a lot more information about that particular jurisdiction. And overall, if you were gonna, if you were gonna try to summarize based on all that stuff we put together, You'd, you'd have to say the mulder populations, after that decline, they've recovered quite a bit, and, and all of them are either increasing or stable now, except for maybe one or two. Um, and so they, they haven't recovered to the point where they were in uh, prior to that decline in, in the late 1990s or throughout the 1990s. But they certainly recovered and, and um, are a lot closer to population objectives and at population objectives in some areas. And so that's a nationwide perspective is that you still hear, um, you still read articles sometimes about this Mueller decline. And you hear people come to meetings and say, what are you going to do about this Mueller decline that I've, I've heard about? Well, in reality, that was really 15 years ago, and, and deer populations are, are doing a lot better than they are now. In Arizona itself, we've seen um, an increase in, in both species of whitetail. And you look at our data, and, and we've got you better... You mean both species of deer? Both species of deer, I'm yep. sorry. Yep, mm-hmm. cow's whitetail and, yep. and mule deer. And if you look at the data, 
you've got increases, increasing trends in the hunt success, what percent of the hunters are successful, increasing trends in the buck-to-doe ratio, increasing trends in, in fawn-to-doe ratios. There's more reproduction, more recruitment coming into the population. Um, there's a, a, the number of days it takes to kill a deer is going down because there's more deer available. So all these trends are, are increasing trends in the, the population. We don't have a good estimate of what percent higher we are from 15 years ago, but, but I'm seeing it in the field and I'm hearing other people too seeing it in the field, seeing more deer now than they were 15 years ago. When you talk about that 15 years ago and talk about that decline, was it ever established what caused that decline? Yeah, once we got together, the working group, and started talking about, and, and we, we actually put a book together, and there's a chapter. What we did first was we listed what are the things that might be affecting mule deer populations. Maybe not things that are causing this decline, but what are some of the things that affect mule deer populations? And so we, we then made that list, and, and it went from um, predators to harvest management to um, elk and mule deer interactions to long-term habitat changes. Um, and that was a big one. Long-term habitat changes then had forestry practices, water hydrology changes, um, grazing practices, all kinds of things wrapped up in there. And when we listed all those factors and started looking around the West, it was evident that the mule deer populations throughout the continent, throughout their range, increase and decrease because of different factors. So you get a heavy snowfall or a harsh winter or two in a row in the northern Rocky Mountain states and mealer populations go, go down. You see a big decrease in the populations. If you get a couple of years of uh, drought in the southwest, our populations go down. And so they may increase and decrease for different reasons. And, and really in the 90s, I think it was more bad luck than anything else that they all happen to be synchronized and decreasing, but not necessarily decreasing for the same reasons. And so that's why we saw different populations, different regions respond and rebound faster than others because they're really responding to different things. So if you have like a wet winter one year in Western North America, that could be heavy snows in the Rocky Mountain states and bad for deer. That same wet winter can be a lot of forbs and a lot of nutrition for Southwestern deer and can be a boom for, for our deer. So there's an example of how it's really different factors in different parts of the range that are really driving those populations. Sure. When you look at mule deer and coos deer and obviously you say cows because you're a biologist and that's the <laughs> correct pronunciation I'm, I'm a proud member of the five percent that can yeah. pronounce it correctly um <laughs> regardless cows coos when you talk about our state well let me back up you're a wildlife biologist by practice and by trade and by education correct yep yep within the department how many biologists like yourself or where do you stand as far as do you have a certain branch? Are you in charge of a branch? Um, is there a pyramid, so to speak, coming from the WMs that are, you know, out in the units and what mm -hmm. have you? And then as it funnels up, let's talk about that yep. first. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got 80 some game management units in the state. Each one more or less has a wildlife manager assigned to it. Some wildlife managers have two units um, and sometimes there's two wildlife managers for a, for a large unit. But pretty much one per each. Those wildlife managers have uh, at least a bachelor's degree in wildlife management or biology or related field. They also go through the law enforcement uh, academy, so they have the same law enforcement credentials as a state highway patrolman, um, DPS officer, and, and, uh, and a city cop. In fact, they're side by side in the academy with them. So those wildlife managers do the law enforcement and the on-the-ground biology and surveys. And, and contact the hunters in those units. So, like, for example, a hunt recommendation, they would make a recommendation for their game management unit. They would send it to their regional office, and we have six regional offices, one in Tucson, Mesa, and Kingman, and Yuma, and Pine Top. 
and Flagstaff, they send it to the regional office. The regional office staff look at those recommendations all together, all of the recommendations they get in. And when I was in the Tucson office, I would get for the fall recommendations when we had pronghorn and elk in with bighorn sheep and deer in the fall, I'd have about 45 different individual recommendations that would come to me as the game specialist mm -hmm. to look over. And so I'd look at those recommendations, and we need to make sure that they're all consistent. Those recommendations are all consistent with the guidelines that we've set forth on how we're going to manage deer populations. And, and by and large, they all were. There'd be a few that I have conversations with the wildlife managers. And then we put together a regional hunt recommendation package from each of the six regions, and those would be sent to Game Branch, then the Phoenix office. And Game Branch would then look at all the regions and make sure everything looked like it was in line with uh, what we were supposed to be doing in our guidelines. And then they would make a recommendation to the five-member commission. Um, that was the big April commission meeting. And then the, the commission, of course, aren't biologists, but they're not biologists by for a reason. And that's so that they can oversee the department and direct the department, but also they're not going to be in in the camp of the biologists they're really independent people that are looking at what the biologists are recommending for themselves deciding whether they think that makes sense and taking a lot of input from the general public that have some opinions on how things should be done and then that's where all that that mix of science and biology and sociology um, come into play and then they make the recommendation or the the commission then approves or alters the recommendation that the biologists make so in other words, though, if the commission, let's say, was made up of five biologists as well, and you had a certain subject or what have you where the WMs made recommendations, then it came to the, you know, the, the game branch, and then it went up to the commission where one could argue, the public could argue that it's just the biologists getting all fired up together. Mm -hmm. Sure. Whereas it's almost, by, I don't know, is it by design that the commission is not biologist? I mean, I think so. We have had biologists. We had Bob Hernbrone, who used to be a deer and elk guy in, in um, Colorado. But by and large, it's, it's members of the public that have been active in the conservation community. And, and it is by design that they're a, a, this neutral body that will take, you know, really listen to input from the public, and they really do, and then look at uh, the recommendations of the biologists. And it's definitely not a rubber stamp if you've ever come to commission meetings. It's not a rubber stamp deal. They do a really good job of mixing um, that public input with the science behind the recommendations. Sure. In certain si situations where you have a WM that may have an issue, whether it be, you know, bighorn sheep have, you know, been dying off in his unit or um, you know, maybe he's noticing a lot more coyotes or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, how does it work if, you know, you have someone that's super passionate about coos deer, cows deer in their unit, and maybe they're seeing a decline. And so they're like hepped up trying to make sure that they drop the numbers. Mm -hmm. Is there also a check and balance above them that says, well, tell me why you think yes. that, tell me what you mm -hmm. observe. And, and, Talk that's the that role. Problem. Yeah, that's the role that I played for 22 years or so before I came into my current position as, as wildlife science coordinator for the last three years um, at the state level. But my role in the region as a game specialist, and every region has one, is to is to hold the wildlife manager's feet to the fire and say, okay, you, you've got this thing that you think is going on. How do we work together and collect data to show that? or show maybe that's not going on. And there were times where recommendations came in and they weren't supported by um, any kind of information or data. And we, we can't have that because we have guidelines that the public helps us design on where we want to manage buck to doe ratios and fawn to doe ratios. And then we survey every year and we make our decisions annually. And all agencies, uh, all states don't always do that. Sometimes they do 
two-year rotations and things. And so we survey every year, and we use that current year information to make a hunt recommendation for the next year. And, and if you don't, if wildlife manager doesn't have that information to fully support some change that he wants to make, then we have that discussion or, you know, we can't, we can't do that. We, we've got to, we've got to have a basis in science and a basis in the data. And we collect tons of good metrics on these deer populations every year with the helicopter. We're looking at the number of deer we see per hour of helicopter. We're looking at the buck to doe ratio. We're looking at the fawn to doe ratio. Um, and in region five, I, for years, had wildlife managers collecting, whenever you see a buck, marking the margin, whether it was a, a one point, a spike, one point, two point, or three plus. And you can't always see that the extra tying on a third, uh, on a three point. Mm-hmm. But if you do that, everybody tries their hardest to do that consistently. Over a series of years, you get kind of some interesting information on how many spikes, two points, and three points. So we, we did that. Um, the, when they contact hunters in the field, they age them by tooth wear and replacement. So we get some age structure information. On some of our alternative hunts, we pull a tooth, send the tooth in, do some manuli, which is like looking at tree rings in the cross-section of the tooth, and that's a good way to age them. And then we send out that post-hunt questionnaire that everybody gets, and hopefully they fill it out because it's pretty vital. That gives us the other half of it. We have survey information, and then we have harvest information from those questionnaires. And then we get um, estimated harvest in each unit. We get hunt success in the unit and we get number of days it takes to kill a deer in that unit and so we get all of this harvest and survey information and if something's going on in uh, individual game management unit with a deer population it's going to show up in those data because they're they've been collected consistently and we'll see something something happen so when someone calls me and 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 they did annually for 23 years when i was in the region and says you've got too many tags in this individual game management unit and, and I'll, I swing around, I pull a big binder out that has all the printouts for all the game management units, and I'll go to that species, and I'll go to that game management unit, and I'll walk through with the person on the phone, well, here's what our buck-to-doe ratio was last year, and here's the guidelines we're supposed to be managing within. Here's what the fawn-to-doe ratio was. Here's what our hunt success was. And I'll go through all the current and the trends and the data in that unit, and, and usually we're within guidelines because that's the way we manage within guidelines. Usually the hunter ends up saying, well, you know, I don't really, I didn't see that many deer out there. Um, but I understand that that's the way you manage it. You, you monitor them every year with an intensive survey. You apply those survey numbers to the guidelines that you're supposed to be managing for, and you make decisions based on that. And they usually say, I can appreciate that. Um, you know, and, and thanks for taking the time to walk me through all of that. How important is it in your mind to make sure that we have guys such as yourself and qualified WMs throughout the state that are able to um, manage our wildlife? Um, you know, we, we had a push, I think, last fall or last year, so to speak, uh, from a group trying to, um, in, my, in my opinion, maybe try and take away wildlife management from the professionals and you know make it more at the ballot box how important um not from a job security standpoint Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. from everything that you know how important is it that it it, it's it's coming from all 80 some wms and it Mm -hmm. funnels up and everybody's held accountable yep i mean that's a system that's been established and it's been fine-tuned and honed through the years and it's vital that what we do, we can always go back to science. We can always go back to the metrics. We can always back to data that this is based on. Once we start getting away from that, um, and, and you've got people in urban areas that really don't know anything about the, the particular species or um, any of its ecology, and they want to make they want to make decisions at the ballot box, 
that is a that's a horrible road to go down and i think majority of the public not just hunters but i think the majority of public understands and they do when you poll them that we need to have we need to have professionals managing our wildlife populations not not just voters um pulling a lever and mostly based on um based on emotion yeah back to um we you were talking about mule deer you were talking about 15 years ago and how there was a decline and you know the mule deer have somewhat let's quote unquote stabilized um in some areas it's still down maybe but there's other areas that are that are doing well um is there anything out there on the horizon as a biologist yourself that you're really keeping an eye on or that you would say that we really need to watch what's going on to make sure that you know that doesn't happen again yeah um certainly the one thing i've been involved in a lot recently is is migration corridors as as chair of the mueller working group and and thinking about it from a west-wide perspective um there's a lot of momentum and a lot of funding being put into working on on identifying important migration corridors and then preserving those corridors and that includes winter range uh, winter range and, co and corridors for movement and uh, the we're going to continue to develop in deer habitat throughout the west and everywhere and we're not going mean, to we don't have the option of saying okay we're going to stop development there's going to be continued development and so how is that going to unfold is it going to unfold in an intelligent way knowing a little bit more about the important uh, habitat that that animals need to get between winter range and summer range and important winter range areas or is it just going to uh, unfold willy-nilly and, and we're going to lose some important things so right now i think one of the biggest things that a lot of western states are focusing on are identifying some of these migration corridors to help inform uh, highway placement and, and development in the future and so there's a lot of interest and money and momentum in that right now you know a lot of hunters the hot button is predation and you hear a lot about you know, coyotes and mountain lions on deer specifically. Um, you yourself, you know, having a really big uh, role with deer and it's a passion of yours as well. Um, how do you think, I, I know trying to manage predators is, is a big hot topic, but um, from a biologist standpoint, how important is it to manage uh, predation. Yeah, so predator management is it's a it's an important tool that, that we have in our toolbox and we can use when we need it. One thing we have to be careful of as an agency or, or anybody is we we don't want to kill predators just because predators eat deer. Predators have always eaten deer and predators will always eat deer. It's a management tool that we can pull out and use in a particular case where we need to reduce the mortality rate on a particular deer population or pronghorn population. And so we can pull that out and use it in a specific um, instance but you can't just uh, willy-nilly just start killing predators thinking you're going to do some good for deer because you're not uh, as a mule deer working group one of the first things we put together was a summary of mule deer and black-tailed deer and predation throughout the west just a summary of the research that's been done there's been a ton of stuff done with white-tailed deer in the east and coyotes we wanted to put together kind of a western look and we did and we looked at all of those studies where they did predator research for the purpose of improving deer populations and we kind of summarized the things that um, were common threads throughout successful use of predator management. And, and they, they, they make sense for some of us have been dealing with this a long time. One is it has to be intensive. You can't go out and, and get an electronic call out there and, and shoot two coyotes in a grassland and say, look, I helped the deer population. Because you didn't help the deer population. You, you didn't reduce the coyote density. You didn't reduce the predation rate on those deer. 
um, at all to any measurable degree. And so it has to, if you're going to do it as a tool, it has to be intensive. In fact, some um, computer modeling showed uh, that if you reduce the coyote population 80% every single year, that's what you need to do to, to create a downturn in that coyote density. Their, their reproductive rates are such an influx from other areas that it's got to be super intensive. And to be that intensive, you can't do that throughout the whole state. You can't even do that intensive throughout a whole game management unit in the state. And so the second thing is you have to have a focused area. You know, where is your problem area that you want to really reduce predation on fawns or mountain lion predation on adults? And it has to be intensive and it has to be focused. And it has to be at the right time of the year if you're talking about fawns. The timing is important. You can't go kill some coyotes in, in September and say, oh, you know, I just saved a fawn. Um, but, but when we use that for a tool, we go in right before the fawn drop in a specific area and we hit them intensively and and that's when you can you can do some good so overall predator control is a tool that we can use in some cases but first of all we have to think about it are predators the problem or is the or is the the area overgrazed or is it drought or is it some other problem that's that's impacting the deer population otherwise you're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars killing predators and, and you haven't really um, you haven't focused on the thing that was affecting the deer population. So if predators are affecting the deer population, and, and you know that, then, then you have to think about, well, how, how intensive, how much money do we have, and how intensive can we be, and how much area can we treat? And think about, is it worth it? What if you have a lot of money, and you could actually intensively treat one whole game management unit? That would take a lot of money. You could do it. You would improve the fawn survival the next year. But then the following year, they're right back to where they were. So you spent a bunch of money to improve fawn survival one year. Would that money have been better um, spent on, on juniper clearing or putting in some water or some other longer-term habitat stuff that would help the deer population? So that's something you have to think about. And then there's a, a, some cases where maybe you could go in there and, and improve the situation for the deer population, like on a national wildlife refuge. And one example is the Buenos Aires National Wildlife Refuge, and we've had pronghorn down there. They've been struggling for years. If we went in there and aerial gun um, right before the fawn drop for three years or so, we could really boost that pronghorn reproduction, and we could get that population um, to, to really improve and grow in, in numbers and distribution. But the social repercussions from coming in with a helicopter and aerial gunning coyotes on a National Wildlife Refuge, that, that's something that nobody wants to wade into. It wouldn't make any sense. You could wade into that, and hunters would get such a black eye over it. It would be a huge negative rather than a positive. So sometimes you do have to consider the social aspects when you decide which tool you're going to bring out of your toolbox. Speaking specifically about predators, um, is there one predator in your mind uh, that could get out of control quicker speaking specifically in arizona is there one predator that um you know in your mind is quote unquote worse than others are you segueing into wolves <laughs> <laughs> wasn't quite the smooth transition yeah. that I was <laughs> yeah well, you know when you think about uh, the big predators are coyotes and, and mountain lions and um they impact different things mountain lions impact adults more coyotes impact fawns more Coyotes, um, coyotes can certainly kill adult deer, and they do, and they did in Yellowstone before the, the wolves were there. And, but, but those predators, you know, they're not really going to get out of control. Um, and we've had them for so long, they're, they're kind of at an equilibrium. Um, they increase and decrease a little bit. They affect those populations, but it's not like they're going to grow. Um, we've talked about Mexican wolves at the last podcast, and, and wolves are a species since they're, they're absent from the habitat, and they're being brought in. What we saw 
in the northern Rockies, but they have a tremendous capacity to increase in numbers and increase in, in distribution where they are. They're really they're really amazing animals at spreading and, and increasing with the base. And so that's a, a species that, as you know, I've been involved in for eight or nine years, um, working with the, the restoration of the Mexican wolf to try to do it in such a way that it doesn't run wild like it did in the northern Rockies in, in a way that we can return the Mexican wolves to the southwestern landscape in Mexico uh, because it's important. They were here. They were native species. We restored all the other native species and I think we have an obligation to 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 keep going and, and restore all of them. But with wolves are a little different because we we can't just allow the wolf population to grow as fast as, and, and as much as it wants to grow. We, we have to at the initial stages of recovery because we want to recover them so they're no longer in danger of extinction. But when they reach those levels that um, a lot of good science has shown to be a level where they're no longer in danger of extinction and we've established that with the recovery plan. At that point, we of course need to let them grow above that because we're not going to manage them right on that thin right line, line of, in, right. yeah, of endangered nuts. So there's going to be a buffer. We're going to, and, and that's all planned for. We manage them above that um, line and allow them to exist in areas where they're not causing problems. And at that point, we need to get them delisted. So in areas where they are causing problems, we can go in there and we can maybe move wolves to Mexico if Mexico is lagging behind in recovery, or we can just do lethal control if they're, if there's uh, enough wolves, then, then that's actually a sign of success that it's not a big deal that a couple wolves get lethally removed. You know, a lot of people, of course, see that as a this horrible, horrible apocalypse. But really, when we're restoring an animal, and there's enough of them in the landscape that when one gets in trouble, we can just lethally remove it. That's a huge sign of success that yeah. we're not so worried about every individual animal anymore. In other words, if there's a bad apple, that's going to bring the whole rest of them and give the rest of them a bad name mm -hmm. quote unquote that you can remove that if they got to a certain level yep. if you've got a you know a problem animal or two and, and even on the way to that level that's that's a well-known phenomenon in, in wolf recovery you get individual wolves that are that are problems some people don't like to use the word problem wolves but they're they causing recurring problems if you can remove that if you let that one animal stay there continue to calculate kill cattle, continue to hang around a house or whatever it's doing that it, that's unsafe or shouldn't be doing, then you get this upswelling of public discontent and hatred about these dang wolves. And uh, this is the government wolves here, and this wolf keeps causing problems. The government won't do anything about it. You get all this rising discontent and hatred, really like we did in the northern Rockies when that population was five times the level the scientists said um, they're no longer in danger of extinction. And when, when that just kept growing and growing, it's just like when you have a couple bad wolves, you get that, that negative, um, just growth in, in negative thoughts about wolves. And pretty soon you've got legislators introducing bills to defund um, wolf recovery, and you get all kinds of bad things that even wolf advocates don't like. So a lot of the, the wolf advocates that want as many wolves saturated in as many places as possible, they don't care about elk or cattle, even those people, some of them, understand that for successful recovery to occur, we do need to remove a couple bad individuals so we don't so we so we can maintain tolerance on the landscape for wolves and maintain um, uh, support for for wolf recovery. So, I think a lot of people that have thought it through and, and are not acting just knee jerk on on emotions. I think they understand that's true, but it's definitely. Um, as, as other places have shown as they recover wolves, it's definitely vital to successful recovery that problem wolves are, we take care of problem wolves. I think that's one of the biggest problems a lot of people that I know have is they're so worried that it's going to get to the situation like in the Northern Rockies mm -hmm. where 
that objective number got so high and it got so out of control and by the time they were able to you know control it that it had done a devastating uh you know had a devastating effect and i think that's one thing that i think you've done a really good job and sometimes i don't think you get enough credit for and the people that you work with is you're actually trying to do the opposite of that you're trying to have a recovery but trying to make sure that science is in charge and that when you do get to those recovery numbers that you are able to manage them and yeah. then it's a fine line there yeah and we and we worked really hard in in working with others and and with some of the experts that worked on past recovery uh, plans we worked really hard to make sure that we were building a recovery plan that wasn't as some of them wanted initially you know lots of wolves everywhere in the grand canyon kaibab has a lot of deer why don't we put wolves up there and all these things in the early stages and we've been able to corral that and harness that in and say the kaibab was never historic range for mexican wolf that's not mexican wolves were never up there they were they were bigger wolves up there they were never mexican wolves in southern colorado so we've been able to rein them in with good science and, and hold their feet to the fire and force them to follow good science and Fish and Wildlife Service policy, which says, for example, you can't restore an animal. You can't have recovery areas outside of the historic range of an animal, which makes sense. You're starting to, you know, where does it end? You bring polar bears, you know, over to Minnesota or something. So, so there's, there's regulations, federal regulations that say you can't restore Mexican wolves outside of historic range. So one of the things we did was write a scientific paper documenting where historic range was. We wrote another scientific paper outlining all of the problems if you were to restore Mexican wolves north of historic range in the Grand Canyon. Another, and these are scientific papers in the leading scientific journals. So when other academics come by and say, oh, I disagree with you, it doesn't matter. You're, you're in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. So you're, you're battling them in their playground um, and not just saying, well, we're the game of fishing. We don't want this or we don't want that. We have, you know, here's some citations of some science that shows why that's bad or why that's not, um, not the way to recover wolves. And we've been able to do a good job of beating a lot of that stuff back. And, and we have a recovery plan now that is very reasonable. And, and so some people don't want any wolves on the landscape. But that, that train left the station. I mean, we're not talking about whether we're going to have wolves or not. We are going to have wolves. So given that, it's, we need a, a wildlife agency and we need the hunting community to be paying attention and be engaged in all this. But, so I'd encourage hunters to, to watch this because we don't want what happened in the northern Rockies when we get towards recovery levels watch it but it's not helpful to sit back and say we shouldn't have any wolves and you know i'm going to kill every wolf i see and all that does is that that feeds the the wolf advocates with ammunition about see how, how this is why the the uh, this is why our law this is why we sue this is why we need a lawsuit because the hunters really aren't the conservationists they say they are so hunters need to stay engaged and help us make sure that they don't run wild like you know, like we did in the northern rockies but hunters the whole hunting community needs to be careful about not saying um things that are just going to give the other side some ammunition and make them look make them look foolish or crazy fair enough i want to transition here just a little bit because we're kind of you know we're here before christmas and both the mule deer and the cows deer i'll, I'll go ahead and call them cows even though i always <laughs> call them cows. i just don't want to get kicked under the table um we're we're getting into that period where i've had a bunch of um, podcast listeners and people that follow on Instagram and stuff over the last four or five days saying they're really starting to see mule deer um, bucks, you know, actively chasing does. And they're starting to actually a few coos deer hunter friends, cows deer hunter friends of mine have seen um, 
bucks, you know, actively chasing does. <laughs> and I want to mean whitetails. Yeah. Starting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely mule deer. Definitely They're getting mule right deer. into yeah. it. So from a biology standpoint, why do mule deer typically tend to start the rutting behavior maybe <laughs> a week or two before? And then it seems as though the mule deer, to me, my observation is that the mule deer might even tend to rut even longer. And maybe that's just an observation, mm-hmm. but talk a little bit about the timing of that. Yeah, I, I don't know if they if they rut longer, they may, but you know, I just haven't seen science and I'm not out there as much as you are observing year after year um, that. But they definitely rut, you know, like a two or three week, at least a three week peak to peak from mule deer to, to whitetail deer. And I don't have an answer for why that is. It's it's one of the uh, what scientists call reproductive isolating mechanisms, a way that those two species, they kind of keep them separate during the peak of their breeding season. So you don't have mule deer does and, and whitetail does in estrus all together, mixed together, and the mule deer bucks and whitetail bucks, that would really be kind of a confusing mess, and we'd probably see more hybrids than we do now. So it is interesting the mule deer, are, there's a, this bimodal peak where the mule deer peak a rut, and then two or three weeks later that whitetail peaks. But I, I don't know of anybody that has an answer for why that is like that. I, I think it is just part of their biology, and, and as they came together, they've maintained that. When you talk about hybrids, um, I mean, can a whitetail buck get up and mount and, br- and breed a mule deer doe, and vice mm-hmm. versa, can a mule deer buck... Yep. And does it happen? Yeah, it can go both ways um, with, with either species being the, the male. It seems to happen more often with whitetail bucks breeding mule deer does. And you'll see, you'll see the hybrid fawns with a group of uh, mule deer does. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that just their breeding behavior, whitetail bucks, the whitetail breeding behavior is chase, 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 chase. The whitetail doe runs and runs and runs and the, and the whitetail buck chases her. Mule deer is much more subtle. The mule deer, they're much more subdued and they don't run like that. The, the doe will move away a little bit and the buck will move in behind her and she'll move away. So you can imagine if a, a mule deer doe and she kind of takes two steps forward and she's got a whitetail buck behind her and he's ready to run, he's it's all over. Yeah. Um, and, and when they've done genetics, they've also found they can look and see by looking at whether it's Y chromosome, they can look at the Y chromosome and the mitochondrial DNA, and they can tell whether it's a whitetail male or a mule deer male, and it's more whitetail into mule deer. Some people have said, too, that the fawns, the fawns do have a lower survival. Those, those 50-50 fawns, they're just, they're not 100%. There's something a little, something's not matching up in there. So they have a high uh, mortality, even in a pen where you provide food, water, no predators, they still have a high mortality rate. And some people have said that, um, the hybrid fawns, because of their, they're not as thrifty. If they're with a group of mule deer does, they've got a better chance of surviving than if they're just following one white-tailed doe. That can be another factor too for um, why it goes, um, why you see more with mule deer groups. How much, how many hybrids? I mean, on the surveys and stuff. I mean, is it very common? Is I mean, give well, the listeners a little bit of a, a feeling. I, yeah, I've seen a few on surveys, and um, sometimes surprisingly, and sometimes because the local wildlife manager said. I've, I've got a lot of reports where I've seen some animals I think are hybrids here. And one of those was um, up by um, Gillespie Peak up northeast of Safford. We were flying surveys, and the wildlife manager, Devin Skinner, said that um, he has seen some hybrid, what looked like hybrids there. And it's hard to diagnose a hybrid. You can do it with genetics. And the only other way to be sure that you're looking at a hybrid is the metatarsal gland on the outside of the, the lower leg. And... Um, and those those are different. Those glands are different. Mule deer have big old six inch 
uh, metatarsal gland on the outside of the lower shank, and whitetails have a little white disc that's less than an inch. And those hybrids are right in between, or two or three inches for that metatarsal gland. And that's hard to see if they're standing in grass. It's hard to see if they run. But we, I had my camera with a telephoto lens out of the helicopter, and we, we got to a group of deer, and there was a couple deer in there that looked like hybrids. And so I just kept snapping pictures rapid fire as it was running next to the helicopter. And when we got back to the, the office and downloaded the pictures, I had one or two pictures where I just caught it in mid-jump, and you could see that metatarsal gland was a hybrid. So we diagnosed it um, that way. But normally they're diagnosed uh, um, with a rifle. I mean, when someone shoots one and thinks it's one species or another, and hopefully um, – we tell them that they get only half of the fine because they're half right. <laughs> but but I truthfully, mean, if it is a hybrid, then, then nobody's cited because they were um, half right. But you need to be really careful because in some of those cases, someone had a Mueller tag and they shot an animal that was a hybrid, but its tail was 100% white tail looking. And so to a game warden, you know, you don't, sh- well, you've got a Mueller tag. You don't shoot something with a white tail tag or white tail tail. Um, no matter what. So anyway, they, they do happen. Um, we used to almost never document them. And then this thing called um, Instagram and Facebook came along. And all of a sudden now, and even the forums before that, the discussion forums, you started seeing these pictures. And I, pr- I don't think I see one every year, but probably every other year someone sends me a picture. Sometimes someone sends me a picture of one live standing there, and I, and I have enough to, to diagnose it. Um, so they happen. There's probably other ones that people shoot, put a tag on, and then they think it looks kind of funny. And the last thing they want to do is call the game fish department to ask them any questions <laughs> until, yeah. they, until they take it home. So there's there's probably more than we see. Um, I'm, I'm seeing a lot more, but I don't think it's an increasing trend. I think it's the social media phenomenon that we're seeing those things. The, everybody's got a photo in yep. the, or everybody's got a camera exactly. in their pocket and everybody can take a photo where a lot of people used to not even carry mm-hmm. a camera yeah and then they to can pull text my the photo right so then immediately it funnels around so i yep. think you're right we see more yeah i was uh, my my son shot a really big mule buck a few years ago and and it was right at dark and so by the time we got to it it was dark and we were all gathered around and and i was starting to um i was starting to gut it so i'm bent over and my phone buzzed and I pulled out my phone, and I look, and there's this buck already, on, on, on Facebook. Already a picture. And I'm just starting to get my knife tip in it, and here's this buck, on, and my phone buzzes in my pocket. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I want to talk about the Kayabab uh, and your own uh, involvement up there. From everybody I've been doing podcasts with, they're saying that the mule deer have done a pretty darn good job in recovering and I don't know if recovers the right word, but everyone seems to say that the Kayabab is back and that mm-hmm. it's trending up. Yeah. Um, can you I, talk I, it, about that? It's amazing. No one's complaining about the Kayabab. Never in my career have we been in this situation. But it's, it's true, and, I, and I'm not an expert on the Kayabab. I, I live in Tucson, and so I'm so far away from that. And you know Todd Buck, and you've talked to Todd Buck a lot. So we have experts on the Kayabab. But what, what I know about it just from looking at numbers is we had, we had all those fires up there in summer range that put a whole bunch of nutrition in the does, really improved the habitat. We had fawn-to-doe ratios for several years that were – a hundred fawns per hundred does or close to it. Anytime you've got that, we, we need in, in the Northern Rocky mountains, you need about 66 fawns per hundred does to break even anything more than that. The population increases, anything less, it decreases in desert mule deer between 40 and 50 fawns per hundred does is, is the average. So 45 is kind of the break point in desert mule deer. And so on the Kaibab, you've got a hundred fawns per hundred does and you do that for several years. So 
those fawns that are born, those, you've hit big fawn crop, those fawns that are born, the next year they may not breed, but the next year you've got all these more female breeders out there. So you get several years like that, and the population just increases. And then when that happens enough time, those buck fawns then are two and three and four and five. Pretty soon there's seven-year-old bucks out there in the landscape, and that's what we're seeing. We're, seeing, we're just seeing the product of all of those fires and that habitat improvement. You talk about being from Tucson. Um, we have come off a pretty dang dry spring uh, statewide, uh, and our summer monsoon rains came pretty good, but came late. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you anticipating? You know, half the season, most of the deer season is almost over. We've got the over the count, the rifle hunts going on here in December, but then the over the counter deer hunts. Um, are you hearing anything out there from the WMs from, um, you know, without the grass for those fawns to really hide and such, um, do you think we'll see lower deer numbers or where do you think we'll be? I, I, I'm hoping those, those, um, you know, the rains come and that grass starts growing, especially in those higher elevations fast enough. I ha- let's see in November, there wasn't a lot of cover couple weeks ago well it wasn't a couple weeks ago mid-november i was out on two different hunts um there wasn't a lot of cover and it was um the area we were hunting was pretty dry we were thinking about water at that time we weren't sitting on water but uh, at one point we went after some bucks and lost them and then we kind of stayed there at that high point specifically because there was a tank down below and we were thinking you might have more activity around that and and there wasn't we didn't see anything coming to water but I, i when it comes to uh the, the cover for fawns, I don't think it'll be too bad by the time they hit the ground there um, in August. And I think what I saw in that late monsoon area, there was probably enough cover for them. Um, when it comes to hunting near water, I always, you just have to get out there and see what it's like. So people will call me and say, you know, you think it'd be worthwhile next week to hunt um, by water. And you don't know, you just got to get out there. And, and you can kind of see by looking at the landscape if it's kind of dry and crispy or if there's a lot of lush green all that vegetation that has moisture in it um, will almost completely satisfy their water requirements. Not completely, but they don't use much water when they have a lot of good forbs. I was going to ask you about that. You hear that a lot where, especially with like a desert bighorn sheep, like, I mean, once once it kind of greens up and, it, I mean, they can virtually right. go for months. You won't see them at the water. Mm-hmm. But from both coos and with mule deer, um, I get this question a lot. How much does obviously I think water more than bucks, mm-hmm. but like literally how long could a buck or a doe, either species, um, go without drinking? With a lot of, uh, moisture in the forage. I don't know. I couldn't give you a number of days, but, but when you monitor a week, probably, and, and you put, yeah, probably. Yeah, definitely. Okay. With, with a lot of good forbs and, and good moisture in there, I bet they could. People like you and other people with a lot of cameras on water holes can probably answer that question yeah. better because that's the kind of information you need is that um, how often are they coming into water. But I know with Desert Mule Deer and some of the past stuff that's been done here, when we get like winter rains come and these f- carpet of Forbes comes up, these don't come to water anymore. Yeah, They just absolutely. don't need it. You know, um, I said something there that, that does come to water more than bucks. That's just something I've observed. Right. It may not be, yep. you know, I think that's t- to be true, especially when they have fawns and they're nursing as well. I mean, yep. that's, they, 
they really come to water almost, I would say, every day, if not multiple times a day. Probably in the later stages of pregnancy when they need water because they need to maintain that amniotic fluid in the sac and they need to, they're starting to produce milk. But that, some early research projects that were centered around deer use and water documented bucks coming in uh, much less frequently than does. Um, also coming in more often when they're pregnant, when they have fawns and they're lactating. Also when we start putting radio collars on deer, finding that does hang around closer to the water sources when it gets closer time to have their fawns and when they have a fawn they're found closer to water and so all of all of that work um, certainly supports that really truthfully all the research that's been done on that sort of thing is not as good as everybody that's got cameras out right now if they're paying attention the, the most value valuable thing is if anybody is like keeping track quantifying that's what that's what research is and a lot of people that run cameras they don't have time for that they're doing other things but that's a gold mine of information if if you if you tally that and keep track of bucks and does and that sort of thing that's that's as good as any research that's what the researchers are doing although a lot of times with uh, a lot less cameras and less coverage let's talk about rutting deer and then I we've got a bunch of question and answer we got questions coming we're going to do a Q&A session I want to talk about rutting deer I want to speak specifically about uh, coos deer uh, whitetails and want to talk about from a time that a doe comes into estrus uh, how long is she in estrus and then if she gets bred or doesn't get bred how long does it take her to come back into estrus talk i've mm -hmm. heard so mm -hmm. much i hear people talking I don't really know the exact Yeah, answer. it's about when they come into estrus, they're, they're receptive about 24 to 48 hours. Some say 24 to 36 hours. So it's a, it's a short period of time. And if they don't get bred, they will recycle in about 28 days is what, is what the literature says. And a lot of people talk about, well, a lot of does aren't getting bred, and that's why there's a lot of rutting activity later in the, in the rutting period. I'm a little cautious of that. The, you know, the, especially if you have a decent density of whitetails, we're finding out from some genetic work and other work that a lot more younger whitetails get uh, a breeding opportunity than we ever thought. We thought it's just the big bucks dominating. Those little guys are sneaky. And, and there was research in South Texas that showed that um, bucks that are one and two years old were doing a third of the breeding in that dense South Texas with a high buck to doe ratio. So they're, they're pretty sneaky about getting in there. And given that situation, I don't really think there's a lot of does that don't get bred and then recycle with uh, a decent deer density around that area. There's just uh, the, the rut, the number of animals coming to estrus is like a bell-shaped curve, and they'll peak in the middle of that peak season, and then they'll tail off, and there'll still be some does that just come into their first estrus towards the end of that rutting period because that timing is just a bell-shaped curve. So I think some people see a later estrus doe, and they assume she wasn't bred the first time, and that the buck-to-doe ratio is too wide, or there's no mature bucks around, or you know they start thinking in, in terms of those things, and, you know, it's just nature. There's some that are really, some that are late, and most of them in the middle. Is the bell curve with a mule deer doe and a white-tailed doe any more, you know, less steep or more yeah, steep? like you were saying, I don't know. I haven't seen that kind of information, so I don't know. But I bet there's probably some of that information out there. I just don't recall running into it. Okay. I don't know. And then you, it's funny, you talk about the behavior of a mule deer doe where a buck will kind of tend and kind of, They'll just kind of take two hops, and but it's amazing how the coos deer. I'm, I'm I have not been around South Texas whitetail or really other whitetail, Wisconsin, what have you, that much. Um, 
do their cousins also run? So in other words, do the whitetails just in general, whether it be mm -hmm. a cow steer or a, a Wisconsin, do they typically run like Absolutely, that? Absolutely, yeah. I remember being on a muzzleloader hunt once in Mississippi because I was a biologist in Mississippi for a year or so working at Mississippi State University on some buck mortality research. And I was sitting in a tree stand with a muzzleloader and I had climbed up this climbing tree stand and I get up there and I was, I was late. It was starting to get light. I was making a bunch of noise. And I was just mad at myself because I was late. And I was making all kinds of noise. Felt like I wasted the whole morning. And, and just about time I was thinking that this eight point buck stops out, steps out of the, the brush, like right in front of me. He may have been coming because he heard the racket and thought it was antlers or something. <laughs> I don't know, but he showed up. And then this, and then he looked over to his side, and he and he saw a doe over there, and started chasing her. And it was a doe and a fawn, and so he was starting to chase that doe, and the fawn kind of fell in behind him, and they ran off. And then they did a big circle, and I saw him come by, and here was the doe, and here's the buck chasing, and then a little while later, here's the fawn trying to keep up with mom. Trailing. Yeah, and and then they went, they ran off, and a little while later, they circled back, and and it was the the doe and the buck came running through. And then after a while, the, the fawn came up and, and stopped and was kind of hanging around my tree. <laughs> Didn't know what to do, but kind of gave up. But certainly in Wisconsin, too, it's the same thing. Wisconsin and the southeast, the whitetails are just, they just have that chase breeding uh, kind of behavior. And so you talk about 24 hours to 36 hours, and that's their time frame. And you said that, you know, studies show that a lot of one- and two-year-old bucks did I hear you say mm -hmm. one-year-old bucks? Uh -huh. Yeah, one-and-a-half-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old. In South Texas, that's, so, I mean, what, spikes? that's what they found. Yes. Mm -hmm. So spikes can breed. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. With good nutrition now, okay. like in the Southwest, I would guess, I don't know of anybody, I've got some information in my book about w what percent of one-and-a-half-year-old does are pregnant. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody had the information on, in cow's white-tailed deer, one-and-a-half-year-old, but in our kind of low nutrition setting, mm -hmm. it wouldn't surprise me at all if none of our cow's whitetail spikes okay. are, are in physical condition to be reproductively ready. That's kind of a guess on my part, just based on that's the way nutrition affects reproductive development like that. You hear all the time guys saying, well, the big mature bucks, we want them, the one, we want them to be the ones doing the breeding. While in theory... I would look at that and say, yeah, that makes sense. But just because a deer is, let's say, two and a half years old and his rack is not mature, mm -hmm. is his semen just as potent, if not more potent, than a yep. big mature 120-inch you know, at, at two and, At two and a half, I would say it probably is. The other point is that his genetics aren't changing. So that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, you may have a little a little forked horn that has far superior antler genetics than that five year old that's doing the breeding. He just he's just not physically mature, and his antlers aren't mature, and he's not aggressive and dominant enough to have a breeding position. But he may actually have better antler genes too. So it's, so there's two things going on. The bigger the buck, the older the buck gets, the bigger he gets. Um, but that doesn't say anything about the quality of the genetics. Um, that's also another thing. And so you can have a um, three-year-old buck that has a bigger rack than a five-year-old buck for sure. I mean, people know that. Very interesting. That All that stuff is very interesting to me. And to take it a whole step further, you know, having done studies in Texas, I'm sure you spent time on properties that were high-fenced and controlled as well. And it's, you know, it's, a, mm -hmm. it's unbelievable what's gone on in the deer breeding, so to speak. I mean, yep. and is it, I, I mean, from a, 
biology standpoint, I mean, if you are taking semen from a, you know, giant non-typical buck and you're breeding all of these does, I mean, it does it mean that those genetics get passed on and the chances of having more non-typical big giant mm-hmm. bucks? Is it? I mean, is that? It does, sure. Okay. Yep. But I don't, you know, I don't like any of that. That's animal don't. husbandry. That's, uh, that's like treating deer like cattle. And I, I, I respect deer better than to do that. So, but from a scientific standpoint, you bet you're passing on those concentrated high quality antler genetics and and even and even the the females carry half of the genetics for antler development and so there's been cases where you have a big old non-typical buck and you take a female fawn of his that he he had and you breed her to other different bucks uh, you know over a series of about five years and the disproportionate number of her male fawns will be Mm non-typical and that's her father's antler genes coming through her which is mind-boggling to mm-hmm. think about how that would ever happen but but it does from a biology standpoint in essence you're you're you don't like it i understand that you're you're playing with fire almost mm-hmm. um you see those one and a half year old deer that are 270 boon crocket points trying to hold their their head up with their skinny little yearling neck and it's almost an animal welfare issue in some cases when you see some of those deer yeah yeah do you think we ever have to worry about that type of thing coming into the Southwest, or do you think that's just something that happened in Texas because it was so much private land and it mm-hmm. just got going and then it just could, it didn't get stopped? Yeah, I think I think that's kind of a Texas thing. You know, there's a few ranches in Mexico that got high fence. I think at least one doing that with mule deer. Um, so it's happening, but I don't think it's ever going to catch on to be um, a major thing in the Southwest. Yeah, it's it's actually happening in Mexico a lot more, and with the mule deer, I haven't seen it with the coos. Um, it really, I'm just torn about it because it just, I'm not torn. It it tears me up because it's like, man, just let them do their thing. I mean, they're such yep. an incredible animal. To my opinion, is you come in and just, I mean, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Why is that even? Yeah. Especially in Mexico, if they're managed, you know, properly to an older age, those are some impressive meal there. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Sure. Let's take a break here uh, real fast. I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast, and then we're going to dive into the question and answer session. Uh, I want to thank GoHunt.com, the gear shop. My friend Cody Nelson of over 20 years is the optics manager there at GoHunt.com, and if you need anything to do with binos, tripods, uh, spotting scopes, uh, reach out to him at 702-847-8747. That's extension two. Now he has promised me, and I hear from him just about every day uh, on the, uh, you guys calling him about optics. He's promised me he'll take care of you. So give him a call. You can also email him directly at optics at gohunt.com. I also want to thank Kuyu. That's K-U-I-U.com. Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. That's the clothing and the gear that I wear on all my hunts. I want to thank Kuyu for their sponsorship. I also want to thank canyoncoolers.com based right out of Flagstaff, Arizona. If you use the J. Scott uh, promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount. And I want to thank phonescope.com. If you use the J. Scott 18 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount. And onxmaps.com, awesome tool. If you use the J. Scott 18 promo code, you're also going to get a 20% discount. Um, We've 
I put out there on Instagram a series of questions, uh, told people that I was going to um, be doing a podcast with you, and we've got a handful of questions in here. So I figure we'll just go through some of them, and I'll throw them out there, and you can answer them, and some will be short and some will be long. Good. I hope there's some that I haven't heard for <laughs> twenty for two two decades in the regional <laughs> office. <laughs> I'm sure this one you've heard. Uh, <laughs> why does Arizona Game and Fish manage only for hunter opportunity rather than age slash true quality <coughs> hunt? Before you answer that, mm-hmm. I believe this question's a little bit has a biased slant because I don't believe you manage just for opportunity, but I think there's a fine line and we can talk about it with your answer. My opinion is the game and fish is placed in a precarious position because you're pros trying to manage the wildlife, but you also have to take the public's input and such and try and make a balance there. And it's also a deal where most of the income or revenue that comes in to be able to manage the animals comes from the public so i know it's a fine line go ahead and answer yes that. and, and I, never, I never go to fi- the financial answer first um we as a, as a department we're trustees of this public resource everybody owns the, the wildlife and we're char- in charge of managing that wildlife for everybody and so we do a lot of human dimensions work we do surveys we find out what the public wants would you and we've done a lot of surveys where we say you know would you rather um, sit out every three years to have a, an opportunity to kill a mature buck and have lower hunter densities, or you rate these um, these things that are important to you in hunting. Um, just seeing a deer, killing a big deer, that sort of thing. And through all those human dimensions work, and we, we had a guy named Lauren Chase who was our, he had a PhD in human dimensions. I mean, this is what he did with a PhD, and he, he was our employee. And so our surveys were crafted and, and have been through time, uh, in a real scientific way so that the answers are, are meaningful. It's not just, uh, here, click on this link and Someone's go to our website and answer. You know, yeah. something that's not randomized right. that you can't extrapolate. So there are good scientific surveys. And, and time and again, year after year, majority of hunters just want a chance to get out there and go hunting with friends and family and, and participate in a hunt. And then there's a subset of people that would gladly sit out four years to have a December whitetail tag. And so we've got that whole spectrum of desires of people, but a vast majority of people just want to go out and hunt. And we find that year after year and state after state after state that in the east and the west that survey their hunters, they find the same thing. The vast majority of people just want to go deer hunting. Now, the, the listeners of this podcast aren't a, a random sample of deer hunters in, in Arizona. So a lot of people listening are like, well, that's not you know what I want to do. But when we survey uh, the public, most people just want to go deer hunting. And so we, we fashion our deer hunting units such that most of those are just an opportunity. We have these guidelines, and the guidelines aren't, it's not like they're, they're all meat hunts and, and we've got 1 to 10 buck to doe ratios. If you look at our deer data right now in our standard management units, which are our opportunity units, they're pretty darn good. Pretty high hunt success, pretty high buck to doe ratio, um, and, and, and things, things are looking pretty good. The, uh, the hunter density that you run into, they all seem to be where I'm hunting all the time, but overall hunter <laughs> density is not really increasing. So even the standard units are in pretty good shape, and, and that's most of them. And then we have a subset for Mulder and Whitetail both where we have alternative management units, and we've taken those guidelines and we've said, okay, instead of managing uh, buck-to-doe ratios down here, we're going to manage those buck-to-doe ratios in, a, in a, a higher level, and we want hunt success to be at a higher level before we'll increase and decrease deer tags. 
and we want um, we want hunt success to be high. We want hunter densities to be at a lower level, so we keep hunter density low. And so we provide a majority of the the uh, the hunting units for that kind of opportunity, and then we provide a subset for those people that want a different kind of experience. And I just recently went through in in our deer populations. I compared the alternative units and the standard units, and I compared all the metrics I could think of. In some cases, we had some anomaly aging, and that's the like the tree ring tooth aging, which is pretty accurate for the older ages. We had some um, tooth wear and replacement where the biologist looks at the teeth and ages it. And we have um, buck-to-doe ratios, fun-to-doe ratios. In some cases, we had what percent of the bucks are over three years old or three years old or older. In some units, what percent of the bucks are five years old and older. Um, and some measurements of antler dimension, how, what percent were four-point better. I pulled together all of the things that were kind of meaningful that I thought might be useful to compare. And, and overall, uh, unit to unit, and I compared those to standard units, those alternative units that we're managing for lower hunter densities, higher buck-to-doe ratios, higher hunt success, more mature bucks, we're achieving that. We're, we're actually seeing that, and you can show that with the data. In some cases where there wasn't a whole lot of difference between alternative deer units and the standard deer units, it was really because the standard deer units are so darn good. They're approaching alternative units in terms of hunt success and mature bucks and things. And so um, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't agree that we're just managing for opportunity. Not only do we have those two tiers of opportunity hunts um, and then alternative hunts for m- more mature age structure, but even the statewide population is doing pretty good now. And also, if you look at um, some of the trends in the graphs where uh, buck-to-doe ratios are increasing, the number of deer per hour in the helicopter increasing, uh, hunt, um, did I say hunt success, buck-to-doe ratio, mm-hmm. everything's increasing. And you look at the number of permits we're giving out, it's flatlined. So we're not keeping up with what the data is showing us, a recovery and an increase in the deer population. And when that happens, when you have that separation where permits are held kind of level and you have more and more deer, what that means is there's more and more bucks maturing. That age structure and buck-to-doe ratio is going to go up, and we can show that with the data. So things are looking pretty good from when I look at the deer data. Um, you know, it may not have been the case 15 years ago when there was a period of time where we said we're just going to squeeze as much as we can out of some of these units. And we talked about going to a, a guideline that went down as low as one buck per 10 does, where if you were at one buck per 10 does, you know, you were within guidelines. And, and so we've been that way in the past, and those were bumped up a number of years ago. And uh, I think things are pretty, looking pretty good now. I think one of the interesting things is you see different states. Um, I spent some uh, quite a bit of time in Colorado as well, and what I've seen kind of with their elk is it seems like over a period of time, they say they're over-objective in a lot of areas, but when you talk to hunters, they say, we can't find any elk. So it seems like sometimes there's a disconnect what mm-hmm. the public yep. sees and what the actual numbers show. And I think in Colorado's um, case, there's a lot of private land. And what ends up happening is those elk end up on private land. So the public land hunter doesn't see them Mm -hmm. as much. But then when they do their surveys in the period of time, a lot of them are maybe off the public land. They're in different areas. Um, I I hear you talk about the quality management units. There are some, let's talk like mule deer, you know, you've got the strip, you've got the kayabab. I know you mm-hmm. guys bumped uh, 3C into unit 3C yep. mule deer. Yep. Um, the one thing I don't see, and t- correct me if I'm wrong, is on the whitetail standpoint, 
I don't know that there's actually quality management units for whitetail. It seems like they're all the same. Is that correct? No, there's uh, five alternative units for whitetail that we've there had is. for 15 years, probably. Um, 6A, okay. 23, okay. Um, 30B, 31, and 36C okay are five alternative uh, those are the five alternative whitetail units and i even when i was a regional biologist because i was in the tucson region and that's where most of the whitetail were and i had a few hunters that, that said you know your alternative units aren't that alternative and so i started putting together <laughs> i started putting together comparisons of alternative and standard units like i did recently with some of the other statewide data but i've been doing that for years down in tucson and, and I had a slideshow that I would show at the public meetings when we talk about hunt recommendations are coming up and we'd invite the public come in and give us their input so that we could use their input before we made our recommendations. And I would start out with an, kind of an overview of what's going on in the state. And then I had a special section where I compared alternative whitetail units with standard whitetail units in southeastern Arizona because I was just a regional biologist. And I showed in all cases, hunter densities lower, buck to doe ratios higher, hunt success is higher, mature bucks, number of three points seen on the survey was different. You could see the difference in those whitetail alternative units. And then the same hunters in most cases would say, yeah, but I want that in my unit. Mm -hmm. I like to hunt over in this unit. And I want, why don't you guys move it to there? And, you know, we can't do it in every unit. And you can't move it around and rotate it, which is one of the suggestions, because you build up that population in a mature age structure. You don't want to abandon that can't and just go leave start, start fresh right. in another unit. So, so we picked units, and then we stuck with that. And we're showing that, that we are providing um, what we intended to do in those units. And there's always people that say, yeah, there's a little bit more mature age structure, a little higher hunt success, a little lower uh, hunter density. But if I don't get a December tag every once every five years, I want, you know, I want some 110, 120 point bucks walking around there. And, and we, you know, we can't do that. Even in those units, even though they're, they're units with alternative management for people to have an opportunity to get a mature buck, you'd like to get that tag once in your lifetime. If they're so restrictive, then there's only a few people that are going to be able to experience Enjoy. that alternative hunt. So you, the agency has to balance between providing an older age structure but not letting them all die of old age and only having five people a year being able to hunt that population because that's not good either. You know, um, jumping off deer a little bit, one of the things in a, in a lot of the podcasts I do with some of the outfitters in, say, 1 and 27 where the big wallow fire went through um, – and from hunters that I've talked to and a bunch of Instagram messages and stuff, I'm hearing a lot, and I'll be curious what your thoughts are. Um, guys are thinking that because of the fire up there that the late hunts, which used to be a real challenge to get a bull because of the open terrain from what the outfitters are telling me, they feel like the age class is really coming down because the hunters, I think we would all agree that the hunters are getting better. The information that hunters are getting are making them better. The equipment they're using is making them better. But then you add those big burn areas where you can actually see. And I know that there's kind of a group out there that are thinking that that one in 27 on the elk, on the bull numbers, that those need to be really looked at. So I would be, if I don't mention that to you sitting here, probably some guys you don't want to <laughs> kick, kick me in the shins. Yeah, and I can't, I can't speak to that because I don't know anything about the elk management in those units. Okay. But I would say to those people that there's tons of opportunity to be engaged in the hunt recommendation process, 
take advantage of those opportunities with the Region 1 people in, in Pine Top and be working with them because they do know what the deal is, whereas I don't. But stay stay engaged because we're, we're all in this together and we're kind of partners in the way we manage these game species. Good stuff. I um, think 6.5 Grendel is going to be the downfall of big game populations, right? <laughs> 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 That's at the top of my list over predators at 6.5. <laughs> Will the Game and Fish create a survey to document the number of lions Hunter C in reference to new quotas? Yeah, the new quotas that we've got 15 um, management units for lions. We, I, I, I don't think there's any plans to expand what we do already and that's already that's in um, archery elk and archery javelina we ask what predator forebearers they saw and um, at the bighorn sheep checkout we asked bighorn sheep hunters um, what predators they saw during the hunt so we do that already i don't think there's any plans to make that widespread to deer hunters general deer hunters you know that would be a that would be a um a suggestion you could make to the department you know in, in one of these processes with the decrease in quality for mule deer in many units, so he said quality, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. will fish and game start limiting tags? How do you answer that? Yeah, the guidelines that guide whether we're going to increase or decrease tags in any individual game management unit in any year, those guidelines are set up in a full public process so the public can come and say, this is the this is the range of buck-to-doe ratios, and this is the range of hunt success, and this is the in the alternative units anyway, this is the range of ages that we want to see. And so they can take part in that process. But once we get those guidelines, we manage to those guidelines. We survey every year and we compare the data to where we're supposed to be. And then we make adjustments whether we need to increase or decrease tags. Um, in looking at age structure and hunt success and buck to doe ratio statewide, even in the standard units in mule deer, I don't see evidence that, that um, equality is declining. And like you were talking about before, there's, it, there is often a disconnect between what people are seeing for a couple of years and what the data shows. And as a biologist, of course, and as an agency, we, we've got to base everything on data, not what we see personally deer hunting or anybody else. And I've always, I always felt bad when someone would call me up and say, I just completed a whitetail hunt. I've been glassing with Swarovskis or um, Vortex for you know my whole career. I spent eight days out there. We were on this high point. I've got this buddy with me who's super experienced. We glassed and we glassed and we moved to these other areas and, and we saw, you know, a couple small bucks and a bunch of does. I don't know how to answer that. I don't right. know how that happens, but it, it's happened to me. I've sat out on a, a hunt and, and glassed for four or five days and, and not seen anything in an area that I've flown a helicopter over and I know it's a great area. So I don't, I, I can't explain why there's, you know, maybe bad luck. Sometimes there's a disconnect um in there with what people are seeing and what the data shows but when we get a big sample size in a game management unit and we apply those metrics to our guidelines that's the way we manage that's the way we have to you might have to step a little bit over to the side to answer this next question but (laughs) um 25 27 years whatever 27 years game Mm -hmm. and fish here arizona and you encourage people to go to these places where they have the ability to stand up and talk. And if they have concerns, 
what has been your perspective of the reality of actual people that do show up? In my opinion, it's yeah. very, very low. It is. Uh, there's, there's been some times like in an April commission meeting where we set all of our deer, bighorn sheep uh, regulations. And there, and there's been times where we go in the quail room here, which is a big auditorium. And there's about 10 people in the room. And that really makes me sad. Now the other end of the spectrum is when there's something really popping and we've, We've got overflow. The room's overflowing with angry people. That's kind of the other end of the spectrum. Right. <laughs> it's hard to deal with that too, uh, but it's all part of the process. But when when we set those regulations into an empty room, it's kind of disappointing. But on the other hand, um, in in some respects, we communicate a lot with the the uh, the conservation organizations, species specific conservation organizations, um, Desert Bighorn Sheep Society. We're talking to them about what our recommendation is going to be, and if they have concerns, we're working with them to see whether we can do something. And by the time we get to the commission meeting, if we've done a good job, there's nobody standing up angry because they're not happy with something. And so, in some respects, not having a lot of engagement in some cases is because we've done a pretty good job of preparing that. How important is it? Um, in you know how how much value do you think these conservation organizations you know whether it be Bighorn Sheep Society, Elk Society, uh, Mule Deer Association, you know Arizona Deer Association, National Wild Turkey, yeah, how important are they? <clears throat> they're amazing. The the force multiplier that and fund multiplier that they um, represent to do volunteer work, to stay engaged, to be politically uh, active. I wrote a, uh, um, a paper in the European Journal of International Science on the role of hunters in wildlife conservation in North America, and I talked about the fact that hunters um, are submitting biological samples. Hunters are sometimes helping with surveys and information. Hunters uh, in their advocacy are going to the legislature and advocating things. They're writing letters to the BLM or the Forest Service. And, and, and I documented all of these benefits, not just money. In fact, I didn't even hardly talk about money in the whole chapter, in the whole paper. And that paper was then turned into a book chapter that's used as a college textbook. So college students get to read all of the contributions that hunters make beyond just dollars. It's easy to talk about dollars. But there's a whole bunch of other things they do. And those individual species-specific conservation groups really are the embodiment of that. That's the infrastructure that really allows advocacy to, to be powerful because they've got that organization, the infrastructure. And so it's not just funding, it's not just volunteer work, but it's it's having them there to support us in what we do against other attacks. There's a question. You've, you've answered it, you know, pretty much, but I'll, I'll ask it again. Have the mule deer population statewide in Arizona been improving or declining? Yeah, it's improved from the, the decline, um, certainly. Currently, if you look through kind of the last uh, performance report, most population, most units are stable. They're not in a steep incline. When I look through, I would say a vast majority were stable. There were several that were increasing and only one or two that were decreasing. So that's kind of a snapshot. Question is, um, ask Jim if he believes the management of reintroduced predators will ever be a reality. Yes, yeah, so reintroduced predators is wolves, probably code word for wolves, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> um, management, yeah, I think so. I mean, we've seen in the in the Rockies, they said, in the northern Rockies, they said, if we could just have three populations of 100 wolves, each one having 10 breeding pairs, we would consider that recovered and no longer in danger of extinction. And they, they changed that 
um, a little bit later to three populations of 150. But that tells you their mindset at the time that if we could just get some little pockets of wolves here and there, we'd be good. And we all know how they blew up. And so I definitely think in the Southwest, um, Mexican wolves will get to the point where they're abundant and, and now restored to the landscape and we'll have to manage them. I believe on the last podcast it was 300 mating pairs. Is that right? 300, no, 320 wolves in the in the total. Arizona, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. 320 total. 320 total wolves in the Gila National Forest and you know in the in the Mugan Rim, Arizona, New Mexico. Okay, and we had talked also about Mexico and how important Mexico plays because if Mexico's reintroduction does not go well, they're going to have to come up here. Yeah, probably if, if Mexico is a failure and is demonstrated to be a failure and not not going to be able to recover wolves there, then one population, even if it's at 320, one population is not going to satisfy the scientific community's um, threshold for no longer in danger of extinction. You still have all your eggs in one basket. One population is just not going to cut it. And, um, and so they were going to have to look for other areas to recover the Mexican wolf, and it's, uh, it's probably not going to be east and west. Here's a question. Um, your personal advice for being a biologist for coos deer hunters, cows deer, in the state of Arizona, um, what kind of tips would you give them? You know, you obviously live in Tucson. You're surrounded by some of the best whitetail mm-hmm. habitat and, and units in the state. Um and I'll, I'll take the question a little bit further. When they're looking at units and deciding, trying to figure out where to apply, what would you tell them to give them advice to look mm-hmm. for, for for a great hunt? Yeah, I'd say for hunting tips, go back and listen to the old podcast. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you do, you've got great you've got great tips. And for someone just coming in, like from Minnesota, not knowing. Okay, here's five bucks. <laughs> I just paid you off. Okay, got <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it really is. I mean, that's some that's some great information for that person. And anything I could say would just be along the lines of what you've covered a lot, you know, using optics, getting up, and just spending most time using optics. Um, I wrote an article um, called Great Glassing Guidelines, which is on my website, deernut.com, and, and that has some tips for glassing, and that might be helpful. I send that sometimes to beginning beginning hunters but the other the other part of that question is how to pick units and in our regulations we have two documents one just every regulations actually the regulations i don't think has the um some of the hunt draw does it have the percentages i think do we move that to hunt arizona i'm not sure it used to have that little blue chart that had yeah we have um one document that's always online as a pdf off of our website called hunt arizona and it's updated every year and it has the last five years of survey and harvest data in every game management unit and hunt success in in um, those hunts and so you can look and see what hunts had a higher hunt success what hunts have a better buck to doe ratio um, even what hunts have a had a good fawn crop last year so there's going to be more bucks the the next year and you can use that information to kind of see how those individual units are doing and and your chance of getting drawn uh, in the regulations we have a page of of draw odds and hunt success for last year's hunts and so if you use those tools you can see what units are really in in better shape or offer a better hunter opportunity you have a book too um deer of the southwest right <coughs> right deer of the southwest from texas a&m university press that was just re-released in a second printing uh, a couple months ago so it was out of print for a while and um and just re-released and it did extremely well in the first 
first cut and so they're where are they for sale on your website yeah my website is deernut.com and you can go there and you can order a, a book off of that and um, also on the left side there's some things you can click on and one is called other publications and i've written a lot of magazine articles on a lot of different things and you can click on other publications and get into not everything i've written but a, a, a pretty extensive list of uh, PDF magazine articles you can just download, save on your computer, free. They're organized by species, deer, pronghorn, um, uh, bighorn sheep, and quail, and other critters, I think. So, you know, you might you might spend some time in there and see some inter interesting things. Good stuff. Here's a question. Did you observe, or do you observe, coos deer bucks using different sides of the mountains more during certain times of the year during your studies? Yeah, I, <clears throat> I haven't done uh, any direct cow's whitetail studies. The, the book that I put together was really benefiting from all the work that we had in the southwest on desert mule deer and cow's whitetail that was not in any single location. It was all scattered in scientific papers. And so the value of my book was to pull all that together and, and, put, and present it in, in hopefully kind of an easy-to-read format. So I haven't done original research on cow's whitetail. Um, they they definitely are going to be, especially in the hotter months, they're going to be in those brushy areas because they've got shade, which they need to stay out of the 110 degrees. And then there's also browse in those uh, heavy, brushy, north-facing slopes. And in the in the summertime, there's not many forbs. Everything's kind of dry and crispy until the monsoons come. So certainly during the hotter months, they're going to be hanging out in some of that thicker brush and, and really through the fall and, and Jay and people have spent all that time out there no better than I do, but they're they're going to be spending, especially the older bucks, on that rugged, brushy, north-facing stuff. Do you think our game and fish department is doing enough predator control, and do you feel the department has a real grasp on predator numbers in Arizona, specifically lion and coyote numbers? Yeah, I'll take the second part of that first we we don't know how many you know, coyotes and mountain lions are in the state and and that's a criticism from some of the anti-groups anti-predator hunting groups they like to point out that you don't know how many mountain lions you have so how can you allow anybody to hunt them and, and how can you not limit the tags but the truth is that we've we've have this stream this long trend of hunting mountain lions and coyotes with the seasons we have and with the restrictions we have and those populations are abundant and doing well and and self-sustaining so we know that the harvest that we have now is a self-sustaining harvest that um, is, is proper management without knowing how many mountain lions and coyotes we have and the reason we don't know is because the predators are, are pretty secretive you can't fly a helicopter over and count coyotes or, or do a foot survey and count mountain lions and so it's just not possible no other state or Canadian province has a, a good kind of censusing method for those species and so we all have done the same thing and we've managed through trends and through time knowing that we still have a lot of those animals um, animals out there and then the first part of the question was about whether we're doing enough predator control and the game and fish department doesn't just go out and kill predators to like I was talking about before to help deer populations it's a tool that we use and we use more often with bighorn sheep and with pronghorn and that's because they're in a more focal area if you've got a bighorn sheep population that's isolated to a little mountain range and mountain lions are, are really digging into them and, and causing a lot of mortality we can go in there and kill some mountain lions and, and really improve the survival of those bighorn sheep or go in an aerial gun coyotes in a in a discrete valley right before the pronghorn drops or fawns and we can really do a lot of good it's hard to just go out in unit 32 
and um, trap some coyotes or aerial gun some coyotes and make any kind of improvement in fawn survival the next year in that game management unit. So with deer, it's more dispersed and it's, it's just harder to make, like I was talking about before, uh, any kind of great gains in the deer population just by killing coyotes. I've got a question for you. From You're a hunter yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you talk about you like big mule deer. Are you still personally, well, you like mule deer. I don't know that I heard you say you like big mule deer. <laughs> I Let's was going to correct up. you. I was going to correct you. I like Let's looking at big mule deer. I don't. Let's back up. Um, yeah. How I like big bucks. Do you think that you have that same um, passion as far as, do you look at deer hunting and be like, man, I'd love to shoot a big buck or I'd love to find a big buck or you know, big giant, non-typical, is there, you know, do you have that passion or is it more just like you like getting out and enjoying? I want a boy. I really want to fill that freezer. That's what I think when I go out there. And and part of it's because I have four boys and the oldest one's um, 26 now and and working on his PhD on mule deer in Texas. Really? Yeah. (laughs) And the youngest is 15 and and my dad is 85 and, and hunted with me this year, hunts every year. And so I've I've always been hunting with different hunts. I've I'll hunt one hunt with me and my dad, and then I'll take two of my older sons on a junior hunt because the other ones are too young. And then as the younger ones came up, I'd have two of them in a junior hunt, and then I'd have me and my dad and two other sons on one of our other hunts. So often I'm in the field and I'm kind of the guide, and I'm trying to get my dad in his 80s a deer, and I'm trying to get one of my sons a deer, and you know I'm last. I'm not going to shoot a deer, and so I'm just trying to get them a deer and that and that's that constitutes our hunting is trying to get a deer and i just i've got a nice four by four on the wall and and the only reason that's on the wall is because that was the first deer i saw during the deer season and (laughs) shot it and so to take that a step further i mean let's just say that um your dad got his buck and your son got his buck and let's say you're up on the 12a west the late the late hunt um and and let's say you've got a week left and you're off work and is there are you still just that? Eh, it's a nice buck. I'm going to shoot it. Or is there any part yeah. of you that's like, mm-hmm. oh, I've never shot a non-typical. Let's kind of wait. Oh, definitely. For a few yeah, days. I definitely would wait. If it was a special case like that, um, I would definitely wait. Last year, I shot my first deer in 10 years because of what I was just talking about. And it was a nice three and a half year old three by four desert mule deer. And that was because it was, uh, we glassed it up. It was about a mile away. And it, when we had about a half hour of daylight yet. And it was like, I think it was the last day we were, last day we were going to hunt and i wasn't going to get anybody else out there that fast uh, quietly and so i just took off and got out there and i got out there in the last sliver of light and and shot the deer and then um it was a it was a pretty decent you know it was three and a half year old so it had it wasn't a really young deer pretty decent little three by four and i posted pictures on social media on instagram and facebook but only the back straps <laughs> i didn't post no one actually no one saw that antler except for my family no one saw the antlers except my family i didn't show anybody this three and a half year old three by four mule deer because it's just the back straps were more important to me and i shared that and i had people say hey i heard you killed a three by four you got a picture of it and i'd send them a picture of the back straps that's awesome i also (laughs) like on your instagram there's a picture and you're holding it's a little tiny shed or something up no it's a tip it's a it's an average size cow's white tail and it's spread as about one inch yeah, and you're holding it out like this. It's <laughs> so hilarious. It's on my desk here in the other room. Yeah. yeah. What is yeah. that? Just a little. It's a little plastic yeah. re- reproduction of a white tail skull plate. That's pretty. And funny. I hold it out and I I use it in my talks to talk about 
this is why I'm interested in mule deer because this is what Arizona whitetail look like. And then everybody laughs. <laughs> what do you feel is the biggest threat to our deer herds in Arizona? Predation, hmm. loss of habitat, hunting pressure, drought, or other? Good. It's multiple choice. <laughs> um, yeah, a, a long term is drought. There's no doubt in the Southwest what drives our deer populations is wet periods and dry periods. In the mid 80s, we had several record wet years, winter rains followed by almost record summer rains. In the mid 80s, our deer populations just really boomed. We were giving out two deer tags to people at that time, and, and we'll never get back. That was really a unique thing. We'll never get back to the mid 80s it's not like lack of good management is why we're not there it was really a unique case of precipitation and then we go into the 90s and our deer population declined so that's really the main driver of our populations but we can't just sit back and say well it's all rain we can't do anything we still need to be vigilant about urban development and urban sprawl and i was talking about migration corridors not so much in arizona but certainly up on the the kaibab to Pontagon is one of our corridors that mm -hmm. we're uh, we're looking at also west of flagstaff there's some deer movements that uh, we didn't know about until some people hung uh, radio collars on deer and found out there's some movements between the South Rim and uh, the San Francisco Peaks in mule deer. The Seven that we, West. That we haven't, yeah, that yeah. we haven't documented. And so we're doing more and more work to, to look at that so we can kind of preserve um, some of that habitat. But certainly long term in the Southwest, there's just no getting around the fact that precipitation drives deer populations. Okay. Let's... um step away from talking about hunting i want to ask you a couple of questions other than the stuff that you do with your job because i know you're very passionate about what else what else drives you what other passions do you have oh the probably the the biggest thing that takes me away from wildlife conservation wildlife management is, is um is action pistol shooting I, I compete in um in pistol competitions using 1911 usually 45 but i've got a nine millimeter too depending on it so i'll shoot steel matches which are just steel targets shoot um uspsa which is united states practical shooting association and that's um, paper targets and some steel and um, idpa international defensive pistol association and that's more kind of um, more realistic defensive pistol um, kind of things and so I just I really enjoy that and so when I have an opportunity on the weekends or in evening matches um, I just I love I love pistol competitions. How long have you been doing it? Uh, I started doing that in 1990 when I was in Mississippi and did that for a few years and then put the guns in the safe and raised four boys and then when uh, the oldest boy got to be 16 years old um, I said do you know there's this new thing called IDPA um, pistol competitions you think he'd you know be interested in that and he said heck yeah run around shoot guns and so we started shooting together and then he went on to um, graduate school and and it's an opportunity phoenix and tucson are are actually kind of the national mecca for the the big name um, there's just a lot of that in this area so there's a lot of it to be had in the tucson and in phoenix area and i like it because i i do my job and i work hard during the day and at night and i can go out to the range and Really, a lot of the competition pistol shooters are not necessarily hunters. A few of them are. We talk about why they didn't get their elk tag this year and, and all that stuff. But I like it because it's something completely different. We go out and we talk about guns. We talk about shooting strategy. Talk about something else um, that I, that I really enjoy. Yeah, yeah. And it's something, something outside of work that's really fun to do. And I think it's important that everybody has something like that. For most of my career... If I had some extra time on a Saturday, I wanted to read scientific papers. I mean, I was just everything. Everything was the same. And then I, I 
once I started shooting pistol competitions, I was really surprised at how refreshing that was to do something else, kind of to recharge and refresh and then come back into it. So I really enjoy that. Are you right or left-handed? Right-handed. Do you shoot left too? No, um, only when they force you to on a certain stage. Okay. They'll have you shoot left hand only. I've, my youngest son is, is um, he's right-handed but left-eye dominant. So okay. we had to we had to deal with that for a while. He was with a BB gun when he was real young. Um, I couldn't figure out why he couldn't just stay in that position. I put him in and, and shoot the BB gun. He was getting all contorted. And then we were on a dove hunt, and he, I was dove hunting, and he was shooting a BB gun at some cans, and I was standing behind him, and I realized just a light bulb went on. I saw from behind what he was doing. He was shifting to the BB gun eye. over to his left eye. And as soon as I saw that, I knew immediately. So we, we started him shooting left-handed. So he shoots all rifles. Um, he doesn't shotgun much, but he shoots all rifles um, left-handed. In these shoots that you're doing competitively, um, you know, how many rounds will you shoot, um, say, in an evening shoot? Yeah, a USPSA match, like 150 rounds usually. And when you go to a big match on the weekend, which would be about seven, or be about 10 stages of, of fire, so 10 different individual stages where the timer goes off, you start shooting, you shoot a bunch of targets as fast as you can and as accurately can. And in, in, in that time then, they apply some, some penalty points depending on how you shot. And so there'll be about 10 of those at a big match, and you may shoot uh, 300 rounds in a day and a half. And each individual stage might be 25 rounds. Um, and so it's, it's neat because there's a lot of movement, shooting through low windows, shooting moving targets, uh, reloading on the move while you run, you're reloading, and you're sometimes shooting while you're moving and walking, and um, that's all pretty fun. So what you see in the movies of running and spinning around and doing cartwheels and trying to hit something yeah. is a little different yeah. isn't it? see in the movies they don't actually have to hit anything <laughs> because they're all blanks but that is funny when people come and watch pistol competitions it's not a spectator sport they see us running around and shooting at these paper targets and you don't even see where the bullet hits on the paper target and it's just it's not a very fun sport if you're not involved in it it's not a fun sport to watch and then when people try to shoot a pistol themselves they realize how hard it is um, it's not anything like the movies, how hard it is to actually aim a little five-inch tube 25 yards down the range and, and hit something small. How's your eyesight holding up? Pretty good so far. Pretty good. I've been lucky. I have some readers, but I, I, don't, I usually don't bring them out. Do you notice at night uh, any difference shooting during the day? Or? Yeah, probably. And some of, the, some of the bays aren't very well lit at night, and if it's dark, um, sometimes the front sight disappears on a far target. And I don't know if that's my eyesight or just poor, poor bay lighting. So how do they structure it as far as, um, do they have different classes mm -hmm. as far as your level and stuff? And, and from, yep. from when you started, like, have you really progressed or have you plateaued? Or I've progressed a little, but the lower categories are really broad. And you can stay in a lower category for a long time. And then once you get into those higher categories, they're narrower in the, the points that you need. And you skip through, but... Um, I'm just at the edge of breaking into B class. I thought I was, I thought I was going to the last match, but I'm a percentage of a point away from it. But once you get into B class to go up to A class and master, the people in those levels are single guys that do nothing else, but come to the range three times a week or ex-military law enforcement guys that shoot all the time. Someone that has a job like me and a family like me and, and the writing that I do, I'm just never going to be able to devote the kind of time that those people um, do. And so I may not progress up to the, the highest levels, but I'm just not in a position to be able to do that. Okay. Jim, it's always a pleasure having you on. I uh, want to give you a chance, if, if you have any final thoughts or what have you, that you want to pass on. 
Um, but it's always great talking to you. You do such fine work. I've enjoyed, uh, I've, writ I've read a lot of stuff that you've written. I really admire um, the standpoint that you come at it, you know, level-headed. You come at it with science, and you do a great job. I always appreciate you coming on the podcast as well. Yeah, I think we have to. And and likewise, I listen to, I catch almost all of your podcasts. I have a, a big collection of podcasts I try to keep up on, and sometimes I can't, um, And and but... But you've got some great information. I really enjoy Thank you. it. You know, it's it's unbelievable. I think this day and age where, you know, this phone right here makes it where you can listen to podcasts and learn about all kinds of things. I mean, yeah. really, there's podcasts on business. There's podcasts on shooting. There's It's, mm -hmm. it's amazing. And then you yeah. take the hunting podcasts. Um, it's really a blessing to be able to sit down with guys like yourself and, and um, you know, pick your brain and I'll try and extract stuff out of that brain ears. And, <laughs> and um, you know, it's just been a, it's been a blessing. And so I really appreciate having you on. All right. If anybody wants to follow me on Instagram, it's Jim Deere. Um, and Deere is like John Deere with an E at the end. I like it. Even the little emblem is. Yeah, I had to take the John Deere logo and alter it so it was a mule deer, though. I saw that, <laughs> <laughs> you turkey. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being on. And I always appreciate your work. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.